chapter 22, verses 1 through 20, and can be found on page 746 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you to a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things Jesus had, just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. May God bless the reading of his word. morning, everyone. So some of you may have walked into the sanctuary this morning and looked at the front and thought something was a little odd. You saw the communion table and you looked at your calendars and you were like, wait, this isn't the right Sunday to have communion. And you're right. It's not the Sunday that we normally celebrate communion because it's not the first Sunday of the month. But as you heard uh, Terry in the scripture reading, our text today covers the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. And so I thought it wouldn't be good to talk about this and not observe it. So we are going to have communion today. And for you traditionalists, don't worry, we will still have it next week as well, since that's the first Sunday of the month. And so as we continue our series on Luke, and we're going to go over our passage for today, um, for those of you who normally participate in the observance of the Lord's Supper, I want you to be thinking about what communion means to you. What do you think and you feel as you observe the Lord's Supper and you take the elements? Is it a somber time for you? Do you feel joyful? What is it you focus on? Do you focus on Jesus and his death on the cross? Do you focus on yourself and your sinfulness? Do you focus on something else? I was a person who grew up in the church And so I remember very early on, as a little kid, I probably didn't know anything about communion. 
but I sure wanted to take the bread and the cup. Um, I always liked uh, matzah crackers, which is what our church used for the bread. And so I just wanted, when the plates were being passed, I just wanted to dig in and help myself and, and grab some of the matzah. And I thought those little cups of grape juice um, that were being passed around were very inviting. I thought, wow, they're little kid-sized cups, perfect for me. And I wanted to um, take the cup. And fortunately, my mom uh, sat next to me, so she um, made sure I refrained from doing anything that could incur God's wrath upon me. So that was good. But, but later on, I discovered that wow, churches can even use different things for bread. And I don't know if you've been to churches like that. Have you been to those churches where they use like these little white styrofoam discs where um, they kind of look, look, yeah, they look like they're made of styrofoam. And most, some of you, if you've had them, you probably think they taste like styrofoam. But I liked them. I thought it was so cool how you put them in your mouth and they just dissolved immediately in your mouth. And so like when I saw that, I just wanted to like grab a roll and just start popping these discs in my mouth. And then later on, I discovered that Wow, churches can actually use real bread to challah communion. And they use things like challah bread. And if you've been, I, I know for our church, even on Good Friday, we use challah bread to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. And I really like challah bread as well. So when I attended those churches, I really look forward to communion. And, you know, in, in, in saying all this, um, you know, it, it's a good thing that my understanding of the Lord's Supper has matured, and, and in saying what I did, you know, I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but that was basically my view of the Lord's Supper back when I was a little kid. Um, but I think in looking at our passage for today, there's a lot we can learn about how we should properly come to the table and, and approach it, and, and, and what we should be thinking and, and feeling. So let's dig in and, and see what Luke would have us learn. And, and before we start talking about the Lord's Supper, um, let me start by kind of setting the background for what's going to happen. So in both verses 1 and 7 of our passage, you're going to see that Luke tells us that this is this time that, is, that this is taking place is Passover. And for those of you who may not know what Passover is, this was an annual holiday for the Israelites commemorating their freedom from Egyptian captivity. So over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, the Israelites were in Egypt in bondage for over 400 years. They were enslaved, they were oppressed, but God delivered them through Moses using a series of plagues. And the last plague was, this, was the death of all firstborn males. And you can read about this in Exodus 11 and 12 in your Bibles. But the Jews could escape this plague by taking a lamb and slaughtering it and splattering some of the blood on their doorposts. And when God's judgment came, he would see the blood on the doorpost and pass over the house and spare the child. And you can read in Exodus 12 that actually this event was initially to be done in haste. He said to um, slaughter this lamb and, and, and eat the lamb with their sandals on, with their staff in hand, ready to move. In fact, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread which was celebrated right after Passover, which is now, and we see in Luke, combined with Passover. Oh, sorry, so the feast, there was the separate Feast of Unleavened Bread, which in Luke we see is now combined with Passover. And what this Feast of Unleavened Bread was supposed to represent was this hurriedness, this rush, that when the Jews escaped from Egypt, 
they didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise. There was, so they couldn't put yeast in their bread, and they just had to eat it, uh, uh, eat this flat bread. And so this feast, now this Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover was combined. And over the years, as the celebration developed, as, as this event um, was commemorated, it became, it, it transitioned from this thing done in haste that we initially read in Exodus 12 to this like big grand celebration. So it wasn't like, you know, like a, a McDonald's event where you would just go in and grab your food and eat and run. But it was this feast that you would just come and linger over. It'd be like, you know, maybe like sitting at like a, a Chinese hot pot buffet where you just sit and talk and eat and eat. And, and, and you would just lounge and, and, and enjoy the company. And Luke gives us a picture of this, where in verse 14 he says, Jesus and his disciples were reclining around a table. So they weren't like in a hurry. They were sitting on a couch. They were lying uh, with their uh, hands and, and face towards the table. And, and they were relaxing and they were celebrating. They were just, just taking their time and feasting. Um, by the way, in mentioning that, um, most of you have probably seen uh, the Da Vinci painting, The Last Supper. So when we think about The Last Supper, we probably get this image of Jesus, you know, sitting in the center of this very long table with the disciples on, on both sides, kind of like how you would see like a groom and a bride on, uh, you know, at a wedding banquet. But in reality, uh, this isn't what uh, the, the Lord's Supper would have, or The Last Supper would have looked like. Most likely, they would have been sitting in tables that were more in a, in a horseshoe shape, with Jesus in the top of the horseshoes and the disciples sitting around the horseshoe. And, and we'll learn next week that, you know, because of this, there, were, there was some clamoring about who got the closest seats next to Jesus, because those were more the seats of honor. But, but I just wanted to give you a sense that this is the picture of what the Last Supper would have looked like. Having said that, um, there's one more thing that I wanted to add, which, which was that the Passover was a time for the Jews to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in the city. Um, it, so hundreds of thousands of Jews would flock to Jerusalem at this time. It kind of be like us going to Times Square to try to celebrate New Year's Eve. So as such, Jerusalem was a very crowded place. Literally, you could have had hundreds of thousands of people in the city. I read accounts where there could have been upwards to like half a million or a million people that just swelled the, the, the ranks of Jerusalem during this time. So this is the scenario as Jesus prepares to eat his last meal with his disciples before his arrest. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we're going to kind of keep these things in mind and, and think about some of the things that Luke would have us be mindful of and how he would have us approach the table as we symbolize um, the Last Supper as it was back then. And so there are a few things that I want to highlight. And the first thing that I think Luke would tell us when we come to the Lord's table is to come reflecting. First, reflecting on Christ. And there are three aspects of this reflection on Christ that I think Luke highlights. And the first aspect is reflecting on Christ's sovereignty, reflecting on Jesus' sovereignty. Throughout our entire passage, Luke emphasizes the total control Jesus had over events taking place. 
Even the first six verses, where we find various things going on behind the scenes to get Jesus out of the way, Jesus was fully aware of what's going on. Jesus knew he would die. He knew he would be betrayed. He knew how he would die. He knew when he would die. And he orchestrated things according to his timeline, not anyone else's. And to give you an example of this, think about, in our passage that we just read, think about how the chief priests wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they were scared of the people because, as it says in verse 1, the crowd supported him. And there were hundreds of thousands of people in the city to, to support, um, that were gathering to celebrate Passover. So they didn't want to do it in public, or, it's gonna, or they might have caused a riot. So what does it say in verse 6 that they were looking to do? It says, they were looking for a time when Judas could hand over Jesus when no crowd was present. And when you think about it, would it this time now, when they were celebrating the Last Supper, be an opportune time to arrest Jesus? There were no crowds. They were in an upper room alone. They could have easily come in, to, to, uh, and Judas could have betrayed Jesus, and they could have arrested him right then and there. But Judas didn't do it then, and he didn't do it then because Jesus didn't give him an opportunity to. Because notice how Jesus gave instructions to prepare for the Passover. He sent Peter and John to first go ahead. And he told Peter and John, you know, do these things. And, and what does it say in verse 13? They left and they found everything just as Jesus told them. Once again, another sign of Jesus' sovereignty. I mean, even though there were hundreds of thousands of people flooding the city, all looking for a place to celebrate Passover, Peter and Jan had no difficulty finding a place to celebrate. And once they prepare things, Jesus comes with the other disciples to join them. He doesn't tell the disciples at any time the exact place where they're going to meet. He doesn't know, he doesn't let them know where they're going to be because it wasn't his time to be arrested yet. He wanted to spend this meal with his disciples. He had more to tell them in his last remaining hours of earth. He had other things to do and other things to teach us before his arrest. So his arrest went according to his timeline, not Judas or the chief priest. And so the irony of the first six verses in our passage is that even though it, it, it appears others are in control, they're not. Jesus is fully aware. Jesus is fully in control of what will happen and when it will happen. And everything will go according to his plan and according to his timing. And so recognizing this, another aspect of Christ we must reflect on then is Christ's submissiveness. If you know my daughter, there's one thing about her is, is that she gets very anxious about uncertain or pleasant events that are, will take place. You know, there's something new that she's going to do, something she's unfamiliar with. No matter what it is, She'll be scared and she'll start asking a lot of questions, to, much to the annoyance of her mom and dad. You know, every five minutes she'll be like, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? Will it be like this? Will it be like that? You know, what if I don't like it? And then Millie and I are like, you know, just stop asking questions. Like, you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. Things will be okay. I mean, even this weekend, um, 
I think most of you know that our junior hires are on the retreat, and this is actually her first retreat. So part of her was really excited, but another part of her was really scared. And so all week she was asking questions like, is it going to be like this? Is it going to be like that? And we're like, don't worry. It's going to be fine. You'll like it. It'll be fun. Just don't worry about it. But, you know, when we look at our passage for Jesus, we don't see this trait exhibited at all. I mean, he knew in a few hours he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to be tortured. He knew he was going to be crucified. Yet he did not try to act to change the outcome, even though it was in his power to do so. I mean, yes, for those who are familiar with Jesus' prayer in John, he did share the trauma of his heart in prayer to his father. But even in the end, his prayer was, may your will be done and not mine. And one commentator noted that the mood of this passage here in Luke just reflects the calmness of Jesus in spite of the knowledge of what is to follow. Though he will be crucified in a few hours, we still find him choosing to worship God through the Passover and focus on his disciples and his teaching. And he was calm, he was collected, he was totally in control. And that's why in John 10, verse 18, Jesus states, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. And once again, he willingly laid down his life. He was totally submissive to the will of his Father. And this leads to the final aspects of Christ we are to reflect on, and that is his salvation. One simple principle that the Passover teaches us is that the price needed to be paid in judgment is death. The price is death. But the price of judgment can be paid through the death of a substitute. That's why in the original Passover, God had the Jews slaughter an unblemished lamb because the lamb would be slaughtered instead of the child. And all sacrifices, when you think about it in the Old Testament, were indications that God allowed people to be delivered from death through the death of a substitute. But you know, no animal, no matter how spotless, would ever be a satisfactory substitute. And that's why the author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, in verses 1 to 4, he writes this, he says, For this reason, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. I mean, that's what he's saying. If we could just sacrifice animals and keep doing so and be cleansed from our sins and, and, and be cleansed from our guilt, we would just keep doing it. But then he says... But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. Once again, it's impossible for any animal to take away sins. So that's why God sends Jesus to come as the perfect sacrifice, the one who is fully satisfactory. And although Jesus is celebrating eating the Passover lamb with the disciples, he will soon become the Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb who offers himself. And the author of Hebrews confirms this later in chapter 10 when he says, 
Then Christ said, Here I am. I have come to do your will, the will of God, his Father. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So though we have rebelled against God, though we have sinned against him and our fellowship with him has been broken, we can be made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We can be reconciled in our relationship to Christ. So when Christ says, this is my body given for you, we reflect on the broken body of Jesus offered up for us so that our relationship with God could be restored. When he says, this is my blood which is poured out for you, we reflect on the shed blood of Jesus which was given as a substitute so that we could escape judgment. So as we reflect on Christ, we should remember his sovereignty, his submissiveness, and his salvation. And in addition to reflecting on Christ, we should be reflecting on one another. As you see from our passage, this event was shared in community with Jesus and his disciples. It wasn't done individually. In the original Passover, the Jews were instructed to celebrate Passover with their family. But here... We see Jesus inviting his followers to come to the table to partake of the Passover celebration with them to indicate their familial relationship with Jesus. He broke from one loaf and passed it around so they would all share of the same loaf. He had them take and drink of wine from the same cup. This was all to further signify the unity they were to have with one another. And so in the same way, though we don't all eat of the same loaf or drink of the same cup, probably more for hygienic and efficiency reasons nowadays. We take the elements together to signify the unity that we not only have in Christ, but the unity that we have with one another. We remember that our relationship with Christ is no accident, but it came with great cost and great plan. And so for this reason, when we come to the table, we are to reflect on whether we have any existing broken relationships with one another. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 29, 29 excuse me, Paul writes, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, one problem that the Corinthians had was that they were coming to the Lord's table being selfish and inconsiderate of one another. They weren't recognizing that they were the body of the Lord. They weren't waiting for one another. They were getting drunk, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. They were coming to the table without, once again, recognizing the true nature of the church, which is this one body in the Lord. A chapter earlier, in chapter 10, Paul just told them, in verse 17, he said, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So Paul says to examine ourselves and recognize our unity with each other, that we are one body. So when we come to the table, we need to be discerning of our relationships with one another. If we have differences with a brother or sister in Christ, we should go reconcile with them before we take the elements. We should be able to put you know, things like petty differences aside and remember that the unity we have in Christ came 
with a great cost. I think of Jesus who gave a similar command in Matthew 5 when he talks about offering gifts at, at the altar. And he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> so I think in the same way, if we have a relationship that needs to be healed, go and go reconcile and then come and take the elements. And don't take the elements before that. So when we come, let us not only come reflecting on Christ, but reflecting on one another. And then a second aspect of how to receive communion, I think Luke would tell us, is to come rejoicing. Rejoicing in Christ's great work, which gives us salvation. You know, there are several parts to a Passover celebration. Uh, In my previous church uh, for one Good Friday, uh, we invited an Old Testament professor at a local seminary to sh- come and share a Passover meal with us and walk us through the steps that would be involved. And, and it was a really interesting event, which might be interesting for our church to do sometime if we haven't done it in the past. We ordered lamb from a local restaurant. We got horseradish to serve as bitter herbs. I mean, it was, we just walked, went through this, um, this process. And, and it was a very, actually, festive and meaningful event. Um, during one part of the celebration, um, one part consists of uh, reading from the Old Testament and giving thanks to God for his past work and celebrate God's faithfulness to his people. Later on, there would be more reading of scripture and worship and song to celebrate God's goodness. And so in the same way, when we come to the table, though we should experience a sense of solemnness, as we reflect on Christ's suffering and death. In another sense, we should experience a sense of joy, thinking about God's love for us. And Jesus, in verse 20, speaks of the cup being the new covenant in his blood. This should remind us of what the new covenant is, as mentioned in Jeremiah 31. In this chapter, God declares, The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. I will put my law in their minds and write, on, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And this is very good news. And this wasn't just for the Israelites, but for everyone who would place their faith in Jesus. And so that's why Paul could write, in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is something very much worth rejoicing in. And then another part of our rejoicing should be thinking about Jesus' impending return. Jesus states in verse 16, I will not eat of this Passover again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. As we think about it, you know, as followers of Jesus, we no longer celebrate Passover. Why is that? Because Jesus was the Passover lamb to end all Passover lambs. He ate the lamb, and then he became the lamb. And so there is no longer a need for sacrifice. We no longer celebrate Passover to remember the freedom God gave the Israelites from the Egyptians. But now we observe the Lord's Supper to remember the freedom and death from sin and death that we receive from Jesus Christ. But according to this verse, there will be another Passover celebrated when the kingdom of God 
will be totally inaugurated when Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom. At that time, Revelation 5 tells us that those from every tribe and language and people and nation will be gathered and made into a kingdom and priests. And when Jesus comes, he's going to gather people from all points of the earth. And there will be this huge festive celebration. And we will celebrate Passover with our Lord himself. And that would just be an awesome event to look forward to. But until that time, we celebrate communion. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns to come and gather his people from all around the earth. And we celebrate this huge Passover meal with him. And we feast in this grand banquet at the end. And this is something very much worth looking forward to, looking to rejoice in. So we reflect and we rejoice. And then the final aspect I want to highlight is that we should have an attitude of responding. So when we take the elements, you know, we we hear this all the time, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And when we hear the word remember, we think of it more in a cognitive sense. You know, to recall a past event, either learned or experienced, you know, I remember someone's name. I remember that time when someone threw a snowball at me or, or something like that. And this is how we understand the word in English. But in the biblical sense, the word carried more meaning. There was still the sense of cognitive recall, you know, remembering someone's name, remembering a past event. But the cognitive recall was to serve as a catalyst for some type of response. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians 4. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 4, you can look at verses 15 to 17. And in these verses, this is what Paul writes to the Corinthian people. He says in verse 15, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. And get this next sentence. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that Timothy will come to remind them of Paul's life, his teaching, his acts, and by reminding them, that in turn should prompt them to imitate Paul's example and live like Christ. So in a similar way, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, the people are not to come to just continue to share meals together and recall Jesus' words and actions, but it should motivate them to imitate his example. They should think about what took place during the Last Supper and his final words. They should think about how he washed his disciples' feet and told them to wash each other's feet. They should think about his instructions about how they should be servants and not seek worldly fame and status. They should think about how during his meals he sought to include outsiders and outcasts, unlike the religious leaders of those days. So as one commentator put it, a meal in memory of Jesus and one which is one which celebrates and prolongs his lifestyle of justice and serving the Father's food to all. So each time we come to the table, 
we should think about not only the events and words that took place for the Last Supper, but we should think about what type of response we should have in return and how Jesus might want us to follow his example through the example he set during that last, during that last supper. And so these are the three attitudes that I want us, that I want to highlight and I want us to remember as we think about the Lord's Supper, but to reflect and to rejoice and to respond. And so looking at the list, one question that I would have for those of you who partake of the Lord's Supper is, what do you do well then? And what do you not do well? For myself, as I thought about this question, I think I often come to the table properly reflecting on Christ, but often forgetting to reflect on one another and and the unity that we have on our body in Christ. I think I come to the table often rejoicing in his salvation, but forgetting to think about his return. And maybe at times thinking about what response I should uh, should, uh, have when I come to the table. So what about you? What are the things you're strong in? What are the things that you can improve on? And so as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, I thought it would be odd to just preach on this and not observe it. So I want us to just move to the table now and prepare ourselves to receive the elements. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come up and uh, Jansen Tolo is going to assist me uh, with, the, um, with the elements and um, w- invite the worship team to come up. And so as we come to the table, we are instructed to prepare ourselves before we receive the elements, to examine ourselves, to come and reflect and rejoice and respond. So I'm going to give you a few moments to do that now. You can have some quiet time to do that as we prepare the elements, and then I'll lead us in a time of prayer. So let's spend some time preparing ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper.